You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your host, Gino Borges. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Poetry of Impact podcast. Today's guest is Rachel Robiscotti, founder and CEO of Edisona Social Capital, a firm dedicated to bridging financial markets and social justice. Rachel joins us as part of an ongoing partnership with Tonic. Tonic is a global action community of around 500 high net worth individuals, family offices, and foundation asset owners who are deepening their impact across the spectrum of capital and personal resources. In today's episode, Rachel unravels what it's like to be a black woman in America. She talks specifically about the commonplace of police violence in the black community and how she's lost not one, but three male family members to police violence. Experiencing it firsthand, Rachel recognizes that the problems faced by indigenous people and people of color are because of multiple systems failures. It's a really cool insight that she has in regards to larger systems breaking down. So she's made it her goal to deeply connect with the community she wants to impact the most and turn finance into a tool of cooperation. Rachel brings a new level of coherency to a topic that often feels so disparate and confusing to many of us. So drop in and enjoy the show with Rachel Robiscotti. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here in this very interesting conversation with you, Gina. Yeah, so there's a lot to talk about. Before we started this interview, we were talking about the name of your firm. As much as I want to know about you, Maybe a way to know about you is through the name of your firm. So can you share what the name means and how you came to it as a part of your process? Sure. So Adesina was inspired by a similar word in Yoruba that means she opens the way. And um, as the founder and CEO of Adesina, um, I learned of my connection to the Yoruba people as I researched my own West African ancestry, you know, decades ago in college. And I, as I understand, this happens for lots of Black folks. Um, and so when it was time to give our work a distinctive name, um, we had started out being a strategy within a larger or within a wealth management firm. And when we decided to really make the strategy its own firm, um, we looked for inspiration and traditions that held meaning for the people who were actually on our team. And the idea of like opening the way is this really beautiful reflection of our mission, which is to serve as a bridge between social justice movements and financial markets. So um, in many ways, I think that the DNA of any organization or company really, um, it starts generally with the founder and the and the founders um, values. And if we're very fortunate, um, those founders know how to bring in really amazing people in the process. And so this was really a collaborative process of finding, you know, what really feels like it represents all of us. And it happens to also have this direct um, link to my own history. You made reference to that it's common for African-Americans to go back and look at their heritage. What is sort of the gravitational pull in your mind to wanting to know one's heritage in terms of specifically your vantage point? What was the appeal for you to do this? 
So I think like a lot of other Black folks, being the descendant of slaves in the United States means that there's, that you just don't have the same sense of what your ancestry might be often. Um, we often have the last names of the slaveholders that held our families. And in a certain way, because those records were held differently and because slaves were actually seen as not fully human, there's a certain way in which genealogical records are just harder to know. And there was a specific um, separation of us from our African ancestry in order to better acclimate people to serve as a labor source, an extractive labor source in the United States. And so just what ends up happening is that, so my partner can trace back their heritage to I think like the 1600s and then before that, like where it was in Europe before they immigrated. And for myself and lots of other African-Americans in this country, there's just a stopping point a few generations back. And so one of the things that you learn how to do in college is research right? And you start realizing, hey, there's some really basic stuff that I don't know. And if you're studying any kind of sociology, you start to kind of see the reasons for that and want that history. And so I was doing that just, I think uh, that I was doing that research in a way that feels like it was uh, very common um, and something that was happening with lots of people um, at my age at that time. I'm curious about your background and what you just shared. It seems like you have a knack or willful disposition for understanding the issues at the intersection of, like social justice and climate and so forth, right? And so, can you speak to me how your personal experience and your dynamic history as an African American, your identity in terms of gender, and how this has created a vantage point for you to say, wow, the legacy story is way too reductionist for my full expressive self? and that it's not exactly how you're experiencing this world. Do you see an overlap of your personal experience and how you're looking at economic and financial systems? Absolutely. Yeah, they were, I mean, I am the result of the intersecting issues that presented in my community growing up. Um, I grew up in Oroville, California, which is on the south side um, in a community that at the time that I was growing up was heavily segregated. So all the black folks lived on the South side. And I mean, these are the kinds of communities that I believe most um, middle or even working class Americans don't really believe that they belong in the United States. I can't tell you the number of times that I've watched um, various nonprofit appeals on television showing the living conditions of people in countries outside of the United States. And I've been like, that looks like my neighborhood where I grew up. Um, I think we're getting more aware of that now that more people have cell phones and can kind of like show pictures and you know videos from where they live. But um, growing up, I mean, just like for example, um, my cousins at one point went swimming in a local swimming hole that they didn't know was actually a toxic waste dumping site. And those were the kinds of things that happened in the South side. Um, and they had to be monitored for a while to make sure that they didn't, um, I think it was like have too high a levels of uh, like whatever the toxic chemicals were. And that happened because it was the South side and it was this segregated area where all the black people lived. So there was a lot of poverty. Um, and on top of that, 
Um, it's very kind of like traditional, even though it was in California, they call it kind of little Texas. It's a very traditional, um, like American setup where most of the jobs that existed were jobs that were primarily filled by men. Uh, so being a family of women, we were particularly impoverished. And I, I say that we were a family of women and that had a direct relationship to being a black family um, because so many of the men in our family were had either been incarcerated, so removed from the family in that way, or I've actually over my lifetime had three different male family members killed by the police without, and you know, none of those police officers have ever been um, brought to justice. So um, being a family of women um, was kind of part of being a black family in that particular way, just because of uh, the way that our um, criminal justice or criminal injustice system works. Um, and so being at this intersection of like racial, gender, clearly like economics, that was kind of what it seemed to boil down to and also climate injustice, um, were just very palpable growing up. I can, uh, you know, beyond the really poor living and unsafe and unhealthy living conditions, um, uh, a few years back, the Oroville Dam um, that provides hydroelectric power um, had a problem and nearly burst. And the area of town that had to be evacuated, of course, was the south side of Oroville. And so you start to see, oh, that's why all the black folks lived on the south side of town. Um, and it was just really interesting to be in a moment where I realized, oh, we were too poor to have pictures and pay for, like to have cameras and to have photographs developed. And so this jam, because of climate, change and you know the situation that we're in was about to burst and like basically wipe away all of my memories of growing up um so there's just this real intersection from my early life and it actually continues to this day of um it being very apparent that so many of the things that were really difficult um as a child uh all of the attendant things that come with being in that not all those multiple non-dominant groups um they they all were connected and it came down ultimately it seemed to money for me money could like solve lots of these problems like we couldn't move because we didn't have money and um you know we couldn't pay the bail for my you know for the men in our family because we didn't have money so like it all came down to money and thankfully I was a very um smart child I graduated from high school when I was 15, and it was just my mission to learn everything that I could about money. I went to college, and that is exactly what I studied. Um, so for me, it's not a circuitous path at all. I think that my work in the world and my interest in money is a is a direct result of the forces that that shaped me and impacted me growing up, and that that I survived growing up. You have a unique vantage point given your experience. Like, I can't read a book about those experiences and think I will really be able to truly understand the world that you just described to me. I am familiar with Oroville Lake. I grew up in Tracy, California, which is nearby. And we used to go up there during the summertime. It's a big body of water. I hear, you know, I have to tell you, black people were not allowed to go when I was growing up. So I've actually never been to Lake Oroville. Hey, you never been? 
No, but I hear it's gorgeous. And at some point I will actually go. I hope there's still water after this drought. But <laughs> at some point I will actually go. I, I, I'm pretty sure that like, but it was just very clear growing up that that was a place where the white people went and did fun recreational things. We were definitely not allowed. And so that's really telling and accentuating the question. Like, I didn't even know that. That was never part of the discourse. It was never talked about. I just thought everybody was allowed there. Now, with that in mind, both of us have these different experiences. And now we're both in the money world as stewards. But you have the opportunity to reshape how money impacts us and different communities. And I want to dive into this because really, there aren't a lot of Rachels out there. You are few and far between in the world of finance. So we have this really unique, real opportunity to learn from you. So what is it that really moves you to be at the intersection of these issues? What's happening in your world as a result of this? Well, I think that growing up, I was very close to, and even though I didn't have the words for it, I was very close to, and it was extremely visible to me that there were multiple systems failures. These are not just like the failures of individuals that kind of like couldn't get it together, right? These were like entire systems failures that were happening. Um, And so I think that that attuned me to what it looks like when there are systems failures. And I think that's a lot of what impact investing is trying to to address, whether you're in the public or private markets. And I realized that um, while I definitely had some unique gifts as a kid, that I was also in a position of a fair amount of privilege, being born with genius level intelligence into a family that had tons of mental illness, drug abuse, and just like all of the um, disease and attendant issues that come with poverty. um, I could tell that when I went to school and when we would encounter people in the white community, I could tell they interacted with me differently. I was very smart. The lightest skinned person in my family. I have the most like white appearing, you know, European appearing features. And um, so I kind of just moved through the world in this sense of like experiencing systems failures and also knowing that I had a certain amount of like access to uh, this other world where things seemed to be better that was mostly inhabited by white people because I believe I didn't trip as many sensitivities that they might have, I didn't maybe seem as different um, in, a, in a certain way, or like I could play better at being like hyper-educated, for example, because I could pick up quickly and mimic and those types of things. Um, yeah. But the truth of it is that you come into the asset management industry and it, when, you, when you look at actually directing wealth, so there's like wealth management firms and they like service the individuals, families, organizations, they're like doing the servicing and the thinking and the advising, but usually they aren't directly um, deciding where the investments go. Usually they're choosing asset managers, choosing funds. Um, and, you know, black people and women are definitely underrepresented in that realm. But when you actually go to asset management and look at majority ownership in firms, what's really shocking to a lot of people is that 99.1% of all asset management firms, the places where people assume you have the most impact is right. Right. When you're at the point of directing where the dollars go, those are all owned by white men. Um, 
women and people of color combined and all of the different versions of people of color plus all women combined make up less than 1% of majority ownership there. So when you say that there aren't a lot of me out there, I, I would have to agree that it's a pretty small sliver, but it came with, um, it came with the ability to thread a particular needle to see or to, or to see where there are systems failures, to understand that those who are closest to the problems, but farthest from the power usually have a pretty good idea of how to go about fixing it. They just aren't close to the power that would enable them to address those issues. And so I brought that into my work and it just, for me, you know, was started in the wealth management field, working with individuals and families and organizations um, and choosing asset managers. And it just started to puzzle me over time. Like, well, wait, why are the ways that we're going about making impact not at all informed by the communities we're actually saying we want to impact? So like, for example, um, like after the Me Too movement why, uh, began, why are we addressing serial sexual harassment and abuse inside of the workplace with something that may be generally related, but isn't actually directly like addressing that issue? And what I mean is like this outcropping of gender lens investing that was all about women on corporate boards. And if you think about it, women on corporate boards is great. It's so important that we have diversity in, in these halls of power. And at the same time, it's loosely related to this idea of serial sexual harassment at work. If you actually go and talk to survivors and the groups and the social justice organizations that represent them and are run by them, they tell you, no, we need to end forced arbitration for sexual harassment. Well, surprisingly, that just, there was no way to account for that in investment portfolios. That like, so the thing that they said would help, there was no way to address it. And so I knew that my work and the work of our firm was to really say, okay, this is just a data problem. We just have to go about getting the data and leveraging our power um, as investors um, in order to work on the issues that most directly matter to the impacted community. And that is just one kind of very easy example and to share, especially as they're reintroducing the legislation, the federal legislation to end forced arbitration. And I know our work has definitely been supportive in bringing it to bring this issue to the point where it is, but it was, it's the same thing when it comes down to racial justice. I can't tell you how many corporate statements last year after George Floyd's murder um, came down to like commitments to increase uh, diversity, equity and inclusion in a corporate context. But I have to tell you as a black person and as someone who's in deep community with Color of Change, the Movement for Black Lives and the other social justice organizations that do work on behalf of the black community and are led by black folks, I gotta tell you, we were like, that's nice. That's a little bit like giving someone who's having a heart attack nutritional advice. What you need to do is deal with the heart attack and the nutritional advice is super important for that person long-term. So yes, jobs are super important long-term. We don't want black folks and other people of color in poverty, but we have to deal with this system of mass incarceration that put the knee on George Floyd's neck that system, that revolving door of mass incarceration of black folks, if investors aren't dealing with that, they aren't really dealing with the issue. And you know, last year's when we released our um, racial justice impact data set that helped to turn the industry's attention toward these issues that the most impacted community actually said mattered. And so to me, it actually, like my background just made me 
not understand how in the world is impact investors. We could not be talking to those who were most impacted when, you know, it just seemed kind of paternalistic. Be like, well, people care about this gender thing that's happening now with me too. Let's count women on corporate boards and say we're addressing it that way. There was something about that that just seemed disingenuous to me as someone who grew up so close to all of these problems and knowing where the real wisdom exists. And so that's basic, that's the basis of the whole firm is how do we deeply connect with the communities we intend to impact and then translate that into actions that investors can take that really advance movements for racial, gender, economic, and climate justice. Rachel, can you ground that philosophy to what it actually looks like? Like what is your firm offering in terms of products, engagement, and so forth? Absolutely. So um, as asset managers, we build our own portfolio, and that portfolio is available as an exchange-traded fund. It's also available as a separately managed account. Um, so the first one that we built was a public equities portfolio. And um, it's really interesting how so many folks in Impact talk about like, oh, screening is step one. It's really what you do beyond screening. Actually, screening isn't happening correctly if it's not happening from the perspective of what those who are most impacted by these issues want us to address. So what we realized is we kind of had to just start with square one and say, okay, what are the criteria? Are those actually in line with social justice movements? Um, and then once you have criteria, you then have to have ways of measuring corporate behavior against those criteria. So um, often that comes down to data, as I had kind of mentioned earlier. So while we're not a data firm, we have had to do a fair amount of original research and sourcing new data from social justice organizations about issues that they care about in order to integrate that data into the screening mechanism for our, um, our portfolios. Does that start to address the question? Like, so we do screening that actually doesn't exist anywhere else, but if we just did it in our own portfolio, I mean, we could be a billion dollar manager, which we aren't yet, but you know, we're on our way to being. Um, you could be a billion dollar manager and make, you know, and have a wonderfully screened portfolio full of engagement that uh, companies are paying attention to. But if you don't actually work in solidarity with other investors, you don't really have a movement, you aren't really able to truly impact um, kind of like these issues at a systems level. So we selectively take data sets where like data doesn't already exist, for example, around racial justice and mass incarceration um, or around forced arbitration for sexual harassment or in the economic justice side around subminimum wages for employees. Um, and we not only are the first to integrate that into our portfolio, we actually do full-fledged investor campaigns that build solidarity around that issue. So it's integrated in our portfolio first as an exemplar. And then we're also um, bringing investors together to take collective action on these issues with some pretty um, amazing results in the process. Our public equities um, strategy is available both as an ETF, the um, Adesina Social Justice All Cap Global ETF. The ticker symbol is JSTC. And um, it's also available as a US-centric SMA, like a smaller number of positions. Um, what we realized is that it is so important to do the kind of investing that needs to be done in the regenerative economy, like where you're actually investing directly in small business owners doing local and place-based work. 
And that's not where most of the money is currently housed. Most of the money is currently housed in public markets. And so if you're going to target making large scale systemic change, you have to go where most of the money is concentrated because in our current society, that money is the power to make systems change. So, and we realize that if we're going to the largest pool of assets, we can't simply, you know, just vote our shareholder proxies. We have to be organizing other investors on how they can vote their shareholder proxies and how they can screen their portfolios in alignment with social justice movements as well. So um, that's kind of, that's a, a lot of the work that we do on the public equity side. We also have a, what we call a fiscal justice municipal strategy. And that on the fixed income side is specifically about investing through a municipal bonds approach that directly flows money into black communities across the country. And it does so in a way that partners with the local communities so that we engage um, as bondholder activists, which by the way, we're also used to shareholders and you know, engaging with companies, but bondholders almost never engage with the municipalities. Um, but with our fiscal justice municipal strategy in partnership with local community organizations, we actually leverage that power in order to improve conditions for the local black residents in those communities. So it's a more targeted strategy, but it comes from the exact same place, which is those closest, those residents there actually have answers about how those municipal funds should be spent and how we can leverage our power as investors who've um, lent money, right, to their municipalities. And listening to you while we're speaking of gender, climate justice, and economics, there's something emergent that keeps coming back to race as a dominant feature as part of your work. At the heart of it, I keep feeling, seeing, hearing, imagining race as this omnipotent origin of ongoing discovery as Rachel as a person and your ongoing discovery as a professional who's trying to do the right thing in the world. Your story about you losing family members, for instance, to police violence is something I haven't experienced. All of my narratives around me are mediated. I don't have any contact with that world that you just shared. Hey, I'm thankful for that these days. But just so you know, it's, mine's not an unusual story. And yeah. I'm just thankful that there are enough phones in hands to capture it so that it's undeniable. But this is something that I have to tell you in the Black community. It's really actually hard at this point to find someone whose life has not been touched by police yeah. violence. And the thing about it, because of your story, your sole profession alone probably immunizes you from people thinking you've had that experience, right? I mean, like if you look at other African-Americans in certain types of positions, oh, you'd say that they are likely to have been in that position. But if I hadn't heard your story without you dropping into it, I probably wouldn't have come to that conclusion myself. Right, because you're living in a different world. We live in these segregated worlds as much as it's, you know, it's de facto, but by economics. But yeah, we live in segregated worlds. You wouldn't, you don't see it. So let's dive into this. This is the base layer of the economic system. You were talking about screening and incarceration not being a part of the screening process. How do you share this with people that haven't experienced this and make people be moved by it? In general, I'm trying to actually understand how deep is race to understanding almost everything else. Yeah. Um, well, the thing that I feel really aware of from a, in a very direct way is the way in which um, 
Black and Indigenous folks in this country um, are the reserve population. Um, and what I mean by that is when you have economic downturns or when some, some group of folks has to be kind of like the loser in a situation, um, it kind of always comes down to if it's the Great Recession, it's worse, right, on um, African-American and Native communities. Um, kind of in, in every measure from an economic standpoint, um, you know, the Black and Indigenous folks have been the population that absorbs all of the shocks and allows the current system that we have to continue as is because you're having the shocks absorbed by a disempowered population, right? If that population was empowered, maybe the shocks wouldn't be so easily absorbed. So um, I, have that, I have that direct experience and it, it's, no, um, it's, it's no mystery that uh, the, the country could not have been built without the labor, uh, the forced labor of African-Americans, um, of the African slaves that were brought here. And I think that there's a way in finance that folks just don't really understand how deeply that goes. I mean, we wouldn't have a White House. We wouldn't have Wall Street. We wouldn't have a bond market. The first mortgages that ever existed weren't on houses. They were on the lives of human beings who were slaves that were being traded as property. Um, so like that was that formed the basis of the bond market and not only that but finance was the management and distribution system for an entire country that was built on the theft of land from the indigenous people who were already here and had granary storage and networks and roads and like I think that we get this kind of weird story of like we are at like the white folks arrived in America and no one was here and the truth is it was really well populated um so it's like there was this tremendous theft of land and theft of labor and the and finance was the management and distribution system for the wealth that was created by those massive thefts and while we are all the descendants of that, um, who you know can trace our ancestry back in the United States, while we're all the descendants of that, there's a certain way in which I think the United States is just starting to wake up to the idea that you know if you rob someone and hurt them in the process and kick them, right? You're you're kicking them. Yes, you should stop kicking them. Absolutely, we stop slavery, right? yes, you should stop kicking them, but isn't it also your responsibility to pick them up and help them get better? If you're that, if you as a group are that originating source. And so I feel that a deep responsibility as someone who learned about finance and is an actor in the financial system to move in a way that carries reparations for finance throughout the system to the black and indigenous communities that we built the entire system on. So for me, it underlies everything and every issue we work on, I can tell you, like with forced arbitration, surprise, surprise, right? Like African-Americans and women are disproportionately impacted by forced arbitration for sexual harassment claims, which silences victims and allows serial harassers to continue their work. And um, when you look at subminimum wages being paid to employees where the CEO is paid multiple millions of dollars, and you can pay someone as low as $2.13 per hour, right? Where they cannot even um, make enough money to qualify for um, disability. 
or um, unemployment insurance. When you're in that situation, of course, surprise, surprise, as we were just talking about, like, who's the reserved population? It's actually not a surprise, right? It's overpopulated by women, by people of color. And so ultimately, I feel like race is woven throughout the entire fabric of our financial system. And I just happen to be more aware of it. And I'm able to translate that unspoken truth in an environment where people want to listen to me because I also happen to be a great investment manager. I mean, like, that's really what it is. It's like, I have the privilege of folks listening to me, but it's a truth that's already there. Like, I, I can't weave it throughout everything that I do. I'm just attuned to the truth of it. It's there in all the issues we address. And we haven't talked very much about climate, but um, we won't reach our climate goals if we don't deal with extractive agriculture. And it's also the issue that has the greatest racial justice ramifications. We'll be coming out later this year um, with data on extractive agriculture, its impact on people and the planet. It's like that intersection of uh, climate and racial justice. Um, and again, it, that was discovered by going to those who are most impacted and saying, like, how can we ever imagine we'll address climate without the people who are most impacted, right? By, by the way that climate is changing. And they told us, Fossil fuels are super important, but if we don't deal with this extractive agriculture process, we're in trouble. So it's so it's not necessarily, it's my attunement to the truth of it rather than an overlay that I bring to it. Um, and I just happen to be highly attuned because of who I am and how I grew up and who my family members still are. You referenced this idea of attunement, and I really resonate with that notion of attunement. Is there a particular practice that keeps you centered? You say that truth is there, right? But it's easy for the truth to become convoluted with activity. You have lots of tasks in your daily life that you are responsible for. Do you ever feel, for instance, do you lose touch with that truth in the midst of transactional activity, organizational imperatives, and the immediate needs of everyday life? No, it's a really um, important and deep question for me. Um, I have a spiritual practice that's based in meditation, presence, and um, personal inquiry and a deep commitment to um, being present with what's here, even if it's uncomfortable. I think that that definitely supports me um, in being present to what reality is rather than what I might assume that it is. <laughs> um, I, I have to tell you working in finance, I could probably easily get disconnected from uh, these kind of like core underlying themes, but I still have a family, mostly of women. I can't possibly make enough money to take care of all of them. And it's an all black family. So, you know, that lives in climate compromised areas. So I can get, you know, I can go away to a conference full of investment professionals and get away from it for a couple of days. But I talk to my family and they, um, their lives put me in touch with it. I think that um, the segregation between communities in this country is one of the things that really allows the, the massive inequities to persist. Because if these people were your family, if they were, if they were your chosen family, if they, um, 
were the people that you had to hear from about all of the struggles and you couldn't possibly make enough money to take care of them and all of their issues, um, then I, I think you probably would be in the same boat. You'd have kind of a constant reminder too. And there's a way in which um, I went in this industry pretty naive thinking, I'll learn about money, I'll make money, I'll help other people figure out, you know, both I'll work with women and people of color and uh, queer folks and help them learn about money and like I'll have enough. And I, and, and you know, it was a rather early realization that when the problems are systemic, the best thing that I can do is help as much as I possibly can. But in reality, the most important thing I can do is drive change to the systems that determine the lives that they live. So it's just kind of with me all the time. With that in mind, I suspect there are times where you don't know where enough is, like I want to do more. So the reality is we all live with some amount of constraints or limitations. So you talk about meditation and self-inquiry. Is this your way of migrating between your own mortal realities and your preference for doing more? No, um, it's not. The, the truth of the matter is that being deeply embedded in the multiple communities that I'm in, so not only my family of origin, but um, also in my spiritual community, um, and in multiple communities that are doing social justice work around these particular issues. Um, I am aware of how much more we can do together than any, any one of us can do alone, truly. And so it's funny because when people say, oh my God, I can't believe your firm is 15 people and you've had all this impact and like, how do you do it? And I'm like, we do not do it alone. We are deeply embedded in multiple communities. And that amplifies any impacts we could ever have. But again, that comes very naturally to me because that's the thing that we do as human beings to survive when there's a scarcity of resources, right? We come together, we, um, you know, we do as much as we possibly can in community, we seek safety there. So that's a very natural place for me to sit. So, you know, we not only do a lot of work to build community outside of Addisina, but actually within the company itself also, we're building community with each other. Um, we're moving toward employee ownership very intentionally and already moving toward more democratic um, ownership and management structures so that those who are closest to the work determine what needs to happen. Um, and I just feel like that's kind of the, the truth is humans get exponentially more done in cooperative systems. And it's just about being smart enough to, again, recognize that and employ them. I got to tell you, finance is not about cooperative systems for the most part. Um, so it can be, uh, it can be a funny thing to straddle. Rachel, super inspiring conversation and really privileged to have this conversation with you. You really bring a coherency to a topic that can feel so disparate and dislocated for so many of us. So thank you for sharing your background and for translating your background for those of us in the front country financial world as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, for having me, for your deep listening and for your really insightful questions that allowed me to share kind of more of what motivates all of the work that we're up to at Adafina. I just, I really appreciate the opportunity. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the poetry of impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. 
Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player. And if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.